Welcome to Not Enough Champagne, a podcast that's teetering on the brink. My name's Corey Hazelhurst, and my partner in propaganda is Steve Haynes. Hey, Corey. We've left it late in the day, like the UK government, you might say, but I finally persuaded Steve to record a podcast about Brexit this year. We're barely four weeks away from the end of the transition period. Unless a miracle happens between the time that we are recording this on Friday and the episode coming out on Sunday, uh, there's going to be no real breakthrough in negotiations between the UK and the EU. I know the Brexit would be a self-inflicted catastrophe. How the chuff has it come to all this? And why the hell is everyone so damn calm about it? Steve, is somewhere between deadlocked and Woolest, isn't it? And there seems to be three general main stumbling blocks for that. They are fishing, state aid, and issues of governance for enforcement, which is basically the courts and who's actually going to enforce any agreement that comes through. If we start off with looking at the, the situation revolving around the fishing industry, you have a very uh, interesting little setup here in that this is a very, very small part of the British economy, and yet it has become a massive point of differentiation between uh, Boris Johnson's government and, and the EU. And it is particularly odd to see fishing kind of like held up as in this kind of kind of way, because when you actually look into like the history of uh of, of like fishing in the UK and why we've ended up in the situation uh, we've ended up in. Uh, it's not necessarily because of, you know, EU laws or, or, or whatever. It's because of our own specific actions where we decided to flog off our fishing quotas to um, European vessels because we didn't have enough fishermen. So specific figures then. So fishing accounts for 0.1% of UK GDP which in economic terms is quite low. And there's 24,000 jobs that rely on fishing. So it's a reasonable, it's a pretty decent amount of jobs. But if you look at actually the, the economic impact of a hard Brexit or a no-deal Brexit, um, those numbers are, are quite small in comparison. What you're talking about there in terms of that wider context is the fact that in the 90s, the fishing quotas... Um, declined and the prices that UK captains could get for their fish declined. So what the U- UK captains started doing was, yeah, as you say, selling off their fishing quotas to um, European captains, mostly from Belgium and Denmark. And it's therefore EU fishermen or EU fisheries who do most of fishing in, in UK waters. And I can't promise listeners not going to do any fish puns i realize i did see a tweet recently about why can't any newspaper headline talk about maybe this is one reason why talks uh, no, no one's that worried about the talks because all the headlines are mainly all about fish puns obviously there's no place for fish puns in this podcast so that was just a red herring or was it cod awful who knows the other issue in terms of uk fishing 
is that the UK exports, it is a, a net exporter, you might say. Um, and we've talked about this in previous podcasts, that the fact that the fish that we catch in the UK is sold to the EU. So we are a net exporter of mackerel, herring, salmon, scallops, and something called nephrops. Had you heard of a nephrop before this? I hadn't until I heard the chart. A nephrop? A nephrop, yeah. No, never never come across that one before. Kind of lobster, apparently. You can't eat it here, obviously, because we sell, we sell it to European countries. Who are Clearly. And, and the UK imports most of the fish it eats. So imports cod, tuna, and haddock. That, that's an issue, because obviously if UK... Well, one of the reasons even that UK fisheries seem to have turned against the UK government's slightly um, willy-waving kamikaze approach to Brexit negotiations is because they realised that UK fishermen need to be able to sell stocks to the EU. And if you need to sell stocks to EU, that does involve having some access to the single market and uh, by the way, EU rules and regulations, that sort of thing. And the main sticking quote, the main sticking point at the moment um, seems to be partly around how much EU stocks pay uh, for the quotas of, of the fish that they catch, but also that the, e- the UK is asking for an annual review of their catches that then gets negotiated. And the EU isn't willing to do that because it wants some certainty for its fishermen. I think it does do annual reviews with Norway, who also aren't part of that EU and there's similar relationships there. But the, in Norway, it's only seven different kinds of fish that are covered. With the UK and the EU, it's uh, over 100 different kinds of fish. And you've also got to take into account here that uh, with the uh, the way that these negotiations have gone so far between uh, Britain and the EU, there's going to be a strong opinion on the EU side in a lot of areas that the UK is not not necessarily going to be acting in good faith. So every single time you get you can come up to one of these kind of review periods, you're just opening up uh, an opportunity for the UK government to try and lay it into the EU for a domestic win in some capacity rather than actually coming to the table in a meaningful way, which is what those reviews are meant to be about. Um, so yeah, the fact that the EU has turned around and said, no, we don't want to do that is, is not surprising at all. It opens up a can of worms, which then you put on the end of a fishing rod at the end of a fishing boat. It is unlikely one would suggest that given the UK has already said it would break international law, obviously in a specific and limited way. So therefore it's fine but maybe therefore isn't seen as a good faith negotiating partner. Yeah, fundamentally. So so, so that's that's fish. Holy mackerel, not looking good. I think that's the last fish pun, if only because Steve will start posting them through my letterbox if I don't stop. State aid, though. Again, we've, we've touched on this in the podcast before, but not really in relation to Brexit. It is, again, quite... In, in a similar way to the fact that there are 24,000 jobs at stake that that rely on fishing uh, which is significant but when you consider the amount of jobs that would be lost by a no-deal brexit and put a risk it's it's, i think in birmingham it's uh hundreds of tens if not hundreds of thousands of jobs in just birmingham alone in a similar way it, it is daft to the point of silliness that somehow we're going to risk a hard brexit or a no deal brexit on some fantasy that somehow we can build a massive tech giant or the equivalent of DARPA in the 70s. So much of like the focus on state aid 
scream in, in terms of like the EU negotiations. It reeks of this is something that Dominic Cummings was really big on because, the, you know, building these kind of like tech centers, being able to challenge Silicon Valley, those are all the sorts of things that Dominic Cummings was massively big on. The only thing that was stopping uh, him from being able to implement all of these wonderful things was the EU. Now, the reality is Britain has never had much of a history of this kind of uh, policy making in, in, in any form under pretty much any any government and certainly not necessarily massively successful ones. And given the conservative uh, party's ideological inclination to n- try and spend as little money as possible, I don't see how they're going to actually utilise uh, loosening in state aid regulations or, or rules um, in a way that's actually going to be beneficial because the, the reason you can do a lot of these sorts of things is to prop up industries, prop up sectors, ensure that jobs are staying within the country, all of those sorts of things. But it almost always ends up involves you spending more money. Austerity politics that the likes of the Conservatives have kind of like bought into hook, line and sinker, kind of like going up against also the free market sensibilities of, you know, you can trust the government. So you've got two different camps, two different lines of thoughts. And no one necessarily actually, I think, putting in a case of a strategy for it. If the Tories wanted to actually do this and actually wanted a state in, uh, you know, an an actual industrial strategy, they would have provided an outline of it by now. And they have not. This, uh, which is another reason why I think this is not necessarily something the Conservatives care too much about. It's just, it's something that Dominic Cummings really wanted to do. Johnson's gone along with it. And as a result, and uh, since then, it's just become like a, a nice totemic sovereignty issue, which which you can beat the EU with. Politically, I think you're right. That part of the thesis for Brexit from the Conservative side was needing to release UK companies from the shackles of EU regulation. So I can see why politically you need to try and make that case. The obvious problem with that is that the hard Brexit or no deal Brexit, which is being proposed would end up with masses and masses and masses of red tape and extra regulations. I think you've got the Cummings thing, as you say, but I think mixed with that is you've got Boris Johnson's love of big flashy projects other than just doing small, achievable, realistic, but actually good things. Even in the EU, we had companies owned by foreign governments that would run trains on British tracks and would provide water and utilities into British homes. Now, if that is possible, then I don't see how there are not existing rules on state aid to providing a form of nationalisation and government control and what have you that allows you to do a lot of the stuff that you want to do. The other thing, as you've said as well, Steve, is actually all you have to do is just spend money on it. And... Britain spends a stupidly low amount on research and development compared to a lot of industrialised economies. So actually, all we really need to do is to spend more on R&D. We don't need to create a massive, shiny company like the a British Google, whatever that would be called. I don't know, WIFWAF or something. Or that we, we just need to, to invest properly in some skills and some training. But of course, yeah, 
Boris Johnson won't do that because he'd he'd rather build a bridge or have a mass between Ireland and Scotland or have a mass vaccination program or do anything other than just basic competence. Johnson, I think, is actually the sort of uh, prime minister and politician who would quite happily announce billions going into a into a project. But the problem is those sorts of statements need to be backed up by cold hard cash. And the thing with research and development is that. It is a money sink. Over time, it works out in your favor because you sink all of your money into into things and then you make enough, uh, you, you have one or two big breakthroughs, which can then be translated into actual revenue, into economic output. As any company will tell you, R&D never makes you money in and of itself. It is a, it is a loss maker, but it's something you need to do. But in order to actually... M- think like that you and, and realize that you need to look to the long term you need to be not just thinking in you know a couple of years time you need to be thinking 5 10 15 potentially 20 years time but you 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 need to take a long term view when it comes to things like research and development uh, especially when you're dealing with things at like a national level but when you're constantly having to justify every single pound that's being spent by a parliamentary party and your own cabinet members who are sat there kind of going, oh, but can we afford this? Can we afford this? Can we afford this? When, you know, all every pr- pretty much every single economist that's actually worth their salt is going, yes, yes, you can afford this. And it's not just a case of it's left-wingers saying this and right-wingers are going, no, actually, we need to cut, cut spending. Even right-wing economists at the moment are saying, yeah, no, we can afford this. Like, interest rates are stupidly low. Now is a great time to borrow and invest. But the Conservative Party has become so ideologically wedded to this notion of sound, quote-unquote, finances um, that any kind of long-term thinking that would be required for proper R&D development, it just isn't going to be able to happen because it's going to mean spending millions with no guaranteed returns and the no way of knowing necessarily that this is what the ROI is going to be. I could easily see Johnson making an announcement and then two years down the line, or maybe even a year later, the, the funding for those things getting cut quietly by Sunak. R&D is great. We should be doing more of it, but the Conservatives aren't going to do it properly in any form. It's a really good point and also highlights the need to make an intellectual case as well for the role of the state because the role of the state should surely be the fact that actually you can, governments can take that long-term view and make investments that don't necessarily seem to have a short-term benefit but might have a wider societal benefit further down the line. The other issue with state aid is the way in which the government has awarded contracts for PPE, which is piling scandal upon scandal. Literally people who work in pubs where ministers frequent getting texts on WhatsApp, getting multi-million pound contracts for PPE, which sounds like it should be a jokey made up example, but seems to have actually happened. Yeah, you've got people like Matt Hancock uh, essentially getting whatsapp messages from the owner of his local pub uh, saying hey if we invested in this we could probably provide you with this many face masks or uh, ppe in some form would that be be doable for, for for us do you reckon we could get that sort of contract and hancock goes yes because what as a result of the pandemic um, normal procurement procedures have been suspended because 
and, and it is broadly speaking correct that this is the case because you needed to go very very quickly and acquire an awful lot of things in order to ensure that you know the nhs didn't just collapse due to lack of ppe equipment ppe equipment early on the issue however though is that is now being abused massively because rather than go, going through emergency procedures and then dialing it back and going, okay, we've gotten through the worst of it. What do we need to keep this going across the medium term? Which is something we should have been looking at in the summer when things were kind of like on the down low again with the, with the virus. So you could then go, okay, your your so your mates who have gotten the money for so your your mates who have gotten the initial contracts those can then potentially end or at the very least you can renegotiate them to a lower price and if they've actually delivered on it in a way that's actually good fine okay it's still not great that it's it's your mate that's happened to get it but at least you can say look there's been no problems with this we've they've decreased the price as a result of us renegotiating it's absolutely fine but instead what the government has done is they've just continued to farm out not 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 just kind of like procurement con- contracts but consultancy contracts as well um have also gone gone out to friends and family of of various cabinet ministers so you have this ridiculous setup where money is being pissed up the wall by the government to line the pockets of their mates quite literally like there, there is no other way to put it because that is exactly what's happening. They're the first two areas of, of sticking points. Third one then is, uh, is, about, is about governance essentially. And Ian Duncan Smith, so he, he must know, said that the, e, the ECJ issue was bigger than fish, which is true actually that the building of the ECJ, much bigger than even the biggest tuna you could try and catch in international waters. So... Again, you have the problem here that we talked about till, well, we were blue in the face, really, with yellow stars around our heads back last year and the year before, which is the trade-off between if you you either have a, a soft Brexit where you are part, essentially, you're part of the single market, you're part of the customs union and what have you, you're a member of EU institutions, which means... It's better for your economy, but you don't have as much say in how you govern. So the Brexit thesis is that you have, you know, Brexit means freedom to take control of our laws. And again, the political case has always been about, about that. And that's why the ECJ is, I think, seen as quite totemic. And so the reason why a lot of Brexiters then want to try and not have the ECJ making laws in Britain is essentially about that issue of sovereignty, which David Frost, who's the UK negotiator, keeps saying is is very, very important. Of course, the issue is, if you want any form of access to the single market, well, even, even, even if we have a hard Brexit, even if it's just a bare bones trade deal, if you are a British car company and you want to sell your cars in Germany or Spain, you're still going to have to follow EU regulations on cars to sell to that market and who is the final arbiter of those well it's the european court of justice so it's it's like one of those mazes isn't it where you get lost and then you end up back at the ecj that and unless you're going to have lots of trade with other countries outside the eu to try and offset that which doesn't look like it's happening um by the way given that actually trade for 
to places like China, I believe I'm right in saying this, to China from Germany, say, has increased while us it's gone down from the UK to trade UK transfer has gone down over the past 12 months. Um, doesn't seem to be happening. Also, given a lot of the trade deals that we're striking with economic powerhouses like Japan or North Macedonia, a lot of them we are sprinting to stand still and just trying to replicate the same benefits that we had as part of the EU. There's been a lot of hand-wringing about Joe Biden's election in America and what that means for a UK-US trade deal, which was always a little bit exaggerated. You know, It's not as if John, Donald Trump was going to give us a whacking, lovely trade deal. But you're not going to see much of an economic benefit there either. It's just a kind of feelings of sovereignty, isn't it? And wanting to feel like we make our own laws. And I sort of, I get that in a way, but it's not worth destroying our economy and social fabric to achieve. The core issue, I think, both in terms of like the Remain lever split in the UK, but also in terms of the main issue between the um, the EU and the UK at the negotiating table for the, for the potential trade deal. It's that there are two very different fundamental worldviews and approaches which are completely contrasting and with very little overlap. At the, at the end of the day, if you genuinely believe that your sovereignty or, or that British sovereignty is is worth the economic damage that can be caused by not having that close deal with the EU, then no, no amount of attempt to, attempted persuasion is going to convince you otherwise because fundamentally what you are concerned with is an abstract concept of sovereignty. We should make our own rules. Okay, great, that's fine. But what we're arguing isn't about that. We're arguing about the real world impacts of that. And that is something that unless you are focused, for lack of a better term, on the quant- quantitative impacts of the uh, of, of like the government's positions, you don't necessarily care about it because you know that warm fuzzy feeling of being sovereign is an emotional response rather than a rational thing, uh, and as a result, you're just talking across each other. And I think that's kind of fundamentally where we're we're at, both in terms of the internal debate around Brexit um, in the UK and at the negotiating table between the UK and the EU. I don't think there's any anything wrong in a a political opinion being based on emotion because no, no, there's nothing nothing inherently, but they yeah. but they do become contrasting and if you've got two different things and you are talking at each other rather than talking to each other absolutely i, I think the uh, i wasn't going to disagree i think the, I, th- I think the point actually that and um it's been a bit of a theme of the podcast about the pro-european side having the main political advocacy skills of a herring is we should be saying actually damn it we do make our own laws in the eu like the ecj we appoint uk judges we appoint uk advocates in the EU, you pull sovereignty, and with 27 other countries, we make laws. You know, that's why we elected MEPs, for God's sake. Uh, and I, I don't know, again, it's um, you don't want to end up relitigating 2016 because we've all got no. lives. A lot of it is emotional, and there is an emotional argument that could be made. Um, there are a lot of potential emotional arguments that could be made. Um, like. The- like, again, not to relitigate 2016, but I've always kind of wondered what would happen if you took that, like if you took the the principle of what you're talking about there of like, yeah, we're involved with this, we're at the table, we're, we're engaging with this, and then took it one step closer, uh, one step further rather, and went, 
What do you think happens to Europe without us? We're the leaders. We're the ones that shape this. And you can point historically to all of that. Like an awful lot of the things that actually we ended up complaining about as British governments, we helped establish. Like they're written with our, with, uh, with, with our kind of sensibilities in mind in a number of ways. So I, re- I actually reckon you could have probably made a very convincing case, which would have been... <sighs> you know, exaggerated, it would have been um, not necessarily, you know, accurate or fair on the rest of Europe. But you could have basically said, we are the leaders of Europe, we're the ones guiding them. And you could have made that point much more, much more effectively than uh, than you could have um, what we actually ended up doing, because then you're at least being patriotic and saying, no, we're freaking great. They look up, they look up to us and we're leading them. And that's a way of being patriotic without sounding like Gavin Williamson, which is always a bonus. Um, so I think, I think the other thing is lots of polls. In fact, I think some came out recently. I want to say the UK and the changing Europe did it, but I, I could be wrong. But consistently, when polled, generally, most people in the UK have been happy. If you say, right, well, we can restrict immigration, we can restrict ECJ, whatever it is, but it's really bad for business and the economy. Are you sure you really want to do it? Actually, people say, actually, no, I probably don't. So when people see that there are trade-offs, generally they don't go with the sovereignty, hopeful, upland version of Brexit. Generally, they plump for a more softer Norway-style arrangement. Again, at the start of the year, we said that... Uh, the Conservatives had to keep Brexit off the front pages. And if they'd done that, they'd probably be doing quite well. Now, by and large, I say by and large, it has been kept off the front pages. There have been a few, mainly quite splenetic ones in the Daily Express, blaming Michel Barnier for, I don't know, Winston Churchill's statue coming down or something. But generally, they've it's not been on the front pages. Even now, you know, we are days away. But businesses in January have completely different arrangements. No one knows what it's going to look like at the border. And yet there's a few letters that go around, but it's, everyone's just, just wondering, just isn't, no one's panicking. Why aren't they panicking, Steve? They should be panicked. Uh, because there's a pandemic going on. Fundamentally, that's that's the reason why I think is that's because like the panic. <laughs> sorry, if in March we hadn't had a pan, well, sorry, if in February COVID nineteen hadn't been the thing, we would have had probably months and months and months and months of quite heavy Brexit news because actually when you whilst it's not necessarily being talked about that much at the moment because there's something else to focus on, all of the stories have been there all of the screw-ups, all of the failures, all of the, look how wonderful this trade deal is and being people pointing out, well, actually, Liz Trust, it's exactly the same as the one you had before, except you managed to get a bit more protection for Shropshire Blue Cheese or whatever it is. So, oh, it's all been there. It's just there's been something more, more pressing in the form of COVID-19 and the pandemic. And because, again, the government screwed up the response to COVID-19 as well, that's it's been extended further and further. So we're now in situations where every couple of weeks we're going to be running, rather than running stories on, oh, hey, what's happening with Brexit? We're running stories on, are we going to be in tier two or tier three? Let's find out if we can go to the pub with our mates or not. The, The cynic in me, honestly, like I don't almost thinks that, but maybe the government did it deliberately because 
like it's the almost ideal situation for them to be to avoid the damaging uh, damage from Brexit because there's something else that's taking people's attention away. Not that Boris Johnson brought COVID here to distract from Brexit, but that they're going to try and wrap up the damage from a no deal Brexit and the damage with COVID. I think if they do that, they are assuming the British public are stupider than they actually yeah. are. Because Absolutely. Because it'll be at the end of the day, COVID 19 did not cause massive queues down in Kent as, 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 as lorries try and get through through the country. COVID-19 did not cause actually any food shortages. And there are potentials, there is potential for that in the new year in certain key areas. Well, exactly. So the panic buying that we've seen is mainly a one or two day story at best. Yeah. We are talking weeks, weeks of disruption. Yeah. So um, yeah. So there's so there's that um, yeah. Happy New Year, everyone. So I think there's 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 that. I think there's definitely the COVID distraction, or that the COVID has sucked up so much of our attention, uh, not just in the media, but I think just also in terms of hierarchy of needs, isn't it? Uh, you know, we have spent so much time and mental energy making sure that we are safe, making sure that we are secure, making sure our friends and family are secure, and that and that also it's an existential threat as well i think it's a little bit like i've, I've argued about ch- climate change in the past on the podcast where it's not seen as a like covid is seen as a a, a real existing threat and we mobilize and actually as a community as, as a as a nation we've done a pretty decent job at mobilizing our communities to deal with a threat and provide help to vulnerable people in a way that we don't with an existential threat like climate change and I think, in a way, a looming no-deal Brexit has always felt more of an existential threat than a real threat. And part of that is also because we've no idea what that no-deal Brexit would look like. The other reason, maybe, is because there's not... I think that politically the argument has, has finished. Now the conversation isn't so much remain or leave, but how we leave. I think it's, it's difficult, especially for, for Labour at the moment under Keir Starmer to exactly work out what exactly they want to say. And in many ways, Labour, for, for perfectly legitimate political reasons, has gone nowhere near the issue of Brexit. But we are going to talk about that to our champagneers on Patreon. How could you possibly hear such wit and wisdom and there probably won't be a fish pun in that whole episode. So, you know, it might well be better than this one. I really hope there aren't any more fish puns in that episode. Uh, you can head over to patreon.com slash not enough champagne where for but a few mere pounds every month. You can gain access to uh, such delightful episodes as the one we are going to be recording right after this, uh, where we will be, as uh, Corey said, uh, looking into Labour's position uh, on Brexit and the Brexit vote that's uh, coming up as to in regards to the trade deal. Uh, so, yeah, we, you, we produce... Uh, as you can guess, uh, content that goes out just for our patrons, uh, our champagners uh, over there. Um, we, we produce uh, content in the form of podcasts, in the form of blog posts. We have some roundtable discussions every now and again. And yeah, it's uh, it's all good fun. Um, there's a little bit of a community and discussions that go happen back and forth. And uh, we look forward to seeing you there. Our website is notenoughchampagne.com. Our Facebook page is facebook.com forward slash notenoughchampagne. James Cram designed the logo. You can follow him on Twitter at James Cram. Dave Depper composed our theme tune for Good Times. The podcast's on Twitter at No Champagne Pod. I'm at Paperback Rioter. I'm at Acoustic Radical. Happy plumbing.